Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. Good morning. How are we doing today, Summit family? It is so good to see you. My name is Mel Massingale. I'm one of the pastors here, and I just want to say thanks for worshiping with us. If you're a guest, please make yourself at home. I hope you have a great day, and I just want to say it's our honor to have you with us today. Um, If you are watching online, no matter where you are watching from, no matter where you may be or how you may be joining us, we're so grateful that you've taken time out of your day. We pray that God blesses you. And then finally, I do want to welcome all of our folks that are watching from our Blairsville campus. We love you guys. Can we give them a round of applause today? We're so glad that you're joining us today, worshiping with us. And we're going to have a great day today. I do want to remind you, next weekend is Baptism Weekend, and it's one of my favorite weekends of the year. Uh, we're going to see um, a ton of people baptized, and uh, and just that's why we do this. That's why we have church is because we want to see lives change, people transformed. And that's what we're going to experience next week. Uh, so join us. It's not too late to get signed up. If you'd like to sign up for baptisms, uh, you can register on our website or stop by the info center following the worship experience today and they can help you get signed up. So get that going. Uh, last thing I'd mention to you is tonight at uh, 6.30 p.m. we have the waiting room. It's just a night of worship and prayer. We come together and uh, and hang out and worship God and it's just... It's largely unscheduled, so I mean, like, we just kind of say, God, whatever you want to do in our time together, we're going to slow down and take some time for you. Uh, I'd love for you to join us tonight for that. It's going to be a great evening. So uh, just FYI, there is no child care. There is no kids church. We just hang out and worship God together. So feel free to join us tonight, 630. Uh, today, I'm, I'm really excited to have our, one of my friends with me. Uh, his name is Jed Chapel. Jed and Julie Chapel are the uh, founders and the... Um, the, the leaders of City Center. It's a wonderful ministry in Oklahoma City, and they do a great job of reaching people that have been marginalized by our society. And so they do, uh, their, their heart is to reach um, underprivileged and underserved families and youth. And uh, it's, it's crazy the, God, the doors that God has opened up for them. And I've shared a little bit about his story over the last few weeks, and I've told you that maybe you like church, but or maybe you don't like church, but you like Dateline. This is your guy because he's got a crazy story that I know is going to bless you. And um, and we're going to mention this, I'm sure. Uh, he's got a book that's available today as well. There's only a few copies left out at the table, uh, but he wrote a book about his story called Full Circle God. And many of the the stories that are in that book, we don't have time to touch on today. So I'm sure when we finish here, you'll want to pick that book up, find out more about Jed, find out more about City Center. So please take advantage of that, connect with them following the worship experience today. But uh, if you would, please welcome with me to the stage, Pastor Jed Chapel. <laughs> Jed, thanks so much for joining us, man. Oh man, it's an honor. Thanks for having me. We're, we're glad to have you. Now, uh, for some of our folks, they know you because uh, we've done a mission trip out there uh, with City Center before. So some of our folks know you and they have a relationship with you. But for the people who don't, um, why don't we just start at the beginning? Tell us a little bit about your background growing up. What did that look like? Sure, yeah. I grew up in Oklahoma City and uh, love Oklahoma City my whole life. <clears throat> I grew up in a, in a home. I'm the youngest of five kids, so I'm the baby. I got the brunt of most things <clears throat> growing up. Um, I also, uh, in my family, my older three brothers saw the worst of my father growing up. Mm-hmm. My father used to be a bad 
a drug addict, alcoholic, but he passed away when I was 11. So then I got the spillover of his previous life as a drug addict, alcoholic. So I saw the worst of them. And once he passed, uh, I really saw um, the, a lot of violence play out in my home, a lot of drug addiction play out in my home. <clears throat> Excuse me. I saw a lot of things... Uh, a lot of things happened to my mom because of that, and mm-hmm. my, my older sister as well. So I grew up with a lot of bitterness in my heart. At 11, when my father passed, uh, things began to progress really quickly as it related to that violence that I saw. And so there was one day that, and one evening actually, that really solidified some of the unforgiveness and bitterness in my heart where my life as a young man took, uh, took a pivotal turn uh, at, the, at a young age. Um, one of my older brothers, who was a really bad drug user at the time and was v- very violent, uh, very verbally and emotionally abusive and physically abusive as well, came home one night very high, drunk, and uh, he was supposed to be working on our home mm-hmm. to build this extra room on the back of our house to, so that me and my mom could sell the house and move on. She was going to get remarried. Uh, because we just wanted to get away from everything that was happening in Oklahoma City and kind of get away from our brother or my brothers, uh, so that we could start a new life. And, um, came home high and drunk, uh, held my mom at gunpoint with a shotgun in her bedroom for like a 30 minutes, 45 minutes or so. And I remember I was hiding in the bathroom, 11 years old. And I remember being so like, just scared. And ashamed that I was so scared and afraid. I felt like at that time I was supposed to be at 11 years old, you know, the man of the house protecting my mom, which that's mm-hmm. kind of ridiculous to feel like I could have protected her from this grown man who's, you know, violent and angry. But finally he let her go. And I remember still hiding in the room in that bathroom, looking out the window of that bathroom into that back room he was supposed to be working on. And he's real aggressive. He's throwing things around and, um, getting more and more agitated and irritated. And I remember I caught his eye through that window as I was looking into the window, making sure that he was at a safe distance. Well, he ran up to the window and he began to say things to me and speak things to me and like curse things, you know, saying curse words and calling me names. And I thought he was going to attack me at some point, but he didn't. And I remember in that moment, once he walked away, just making this like inner vow and just cursing God in my heart, like basically saying, I, God, I hate you. I can't believe, you know, as I, you know, up to that point, I had grown up in church and I believed in God. I believed he was real. And I remember being raised by my father and my mother up to that point that God was a good God. Yeah. But in that moment, I couldn't see his goodness. Yeah. All I saw was his abandonment. All I saw was that he wasn't there for me in this moment where I felt like, if ever at any point he was a good God, he would intervene for me. Yeah. And he didn't, you know, and so it's like I shook my fist in that moment. It felt like, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to do my best to run away from you because I don't see your goodness in this moment. I feel abandoned at this point. So there was, uh, this was a transition period for you. Um, you, you mentioned that your mom got remarried. Um, so tell me about that. Cause you would think like, okay, here's where things pick up. She gets remarried, but, but what happens? Yeah. So, you know, in my utter defiance of anything related to God and, and, and a belief in God and, and all that. And I wouldn't say I lost my belief in God. It was more of a, I'm mad at God. And, yep. You know, I don't really like him. You yep. know, she remarries a pastor. I'm like, Hey, thanks mom. That's awesome. She, so she remarries a pastor and, um, 
we moved away to Virginia where he was pastoring a new church at that time, briefly. And um, I just had wanted to, by default, wanted to have nothing to do with him, you know, because of the fact he was a pastor. And so he and I didn't get along at all. But what was really incredible, as I look back now and up to his death just recently, he passed recently because of uh, COVID and things like that. Um, but he lived a full life. He, I mean, he, he was a preacher for 63 years, you know, wow. preached the gospel for six, amazing man of God. We became best friends, like close, close relationship. But um, we just had this a really rough relationship because I just wouldn't accept the, you know, that relationship because of the fact he wasn't my dad, you know, and he represented everything I hated in that moment. He represented God. He was a pastor. And so it was a really rough relationship. And so, anyway, uh, we had kind of a tumultuous relationship. Things progressed. I moved out of the house because that relationship was so challenging. I decided to move back to Oklahoma City with one of my older brothers. And we had a unique relationship. Yeah. um, So as a 13-year-old, you decide your parents, your mom and your stepdad allow you to move to Oklahoma City to live with your older brother. But as a 13-year-old, you you move back home. And um, and that wasn't necessarily an ideal situation. Tell us a little about that. Yeah, I was an ambitious 13-year-old, so I, I decided to embark on a new career. Um, I started a, my career as a street pharmacist. And, um, <laughs> yeah, you guys, oh, good, you guys got that, man. I'm glad. This, the Saturday group didn't get that as well. Um, well that makes so, me nervous that you guys know what he was talking about. I'm in good company, yeah. <laughs> Set up my 401K, you know. Uh, Establish the business, direct marketing. Anyway, so I, so I, anyway, I began to sell drugs um, for my older brother, and it started with weed, uh, you know, marijuana, pounds of marijuana. Then moved on to meth, cocaine, honestly, anything I could sell. And um, so, needless to say, that was a interesting relationship. We called it the family business, and um, you know, uh, wasn't a very good relationship. But I realized I became kind of addicted to that lifestyle. You know, I liked having money. I liked having clothes. Uh, Pastor Mel, you know, asked me how many shoes I packed today for this trip. And, and I packed five pairs of shoes for a two-day trip. I have issues still, guys. But, you know, even back then, I loved things, you know. And so <laughs> yeah. I got it under control now a little bit. But, um, you know, I just I, I found that I became addicted to affirmation. And honestly, I know today that that affirmation only can be found in Christ. Yeah. That affirmation that I was seeking um, from other people wanting something that I had, you know, and really the, the affirmation that we, we, we all look for is found. It's, it's not bad to want affirmation. That's mm-hmm. an, an innate thing within us, but it's found in our relationship with Christ. And, and the good news is this, that affirmation is there for us to have. Yeah. But it's in that relationship with Christ. A relationship with the Father that Christ has opened up for us. Um, he, he, he died for that relationship with the Father. So anyway, I was chasing this, this relationship through selling drugs. And I did that for from 14 years old till about 18 years old. And it led to a day that really began the process of changing my life forever. So tell us about uh, January 20th, 1995. What was, tell us about that day for you. Man, that was a, actually it was a really bright, sunshiny day but not like the song goes um it didn't end like that um it was a it was a beautiful day january 20th 1995 i um in in the drug world there's a time of the year they call the drought season 
And the drought season is that time of the year for various reasons. There's a, a short supply of drugs because of a supply chain or whatever, law enforcement, seizures, things like that. And so in Oklahoma City at this time, there was a short a supply of drugs. And so as a young, unwise um, street pharmacist, I would, as fast as I would sell drugs and make money, I would spend that money because I like things. I would throw elaborate parties. I would do all kinds of crazy stuff with my money. And because the drought season hit, I didn't plan ahead for that kind of thing. So some friends of mine that would collect money for me a lot of times, they would always like to do crazy things in, at this time of year. And so because I was short on money, they, they knew I would be up for anything crazy. So I'll never forget, they pulled up in this old 1988 two-tone blue busted Buick Regal. Uh, car. I don't know if some of you guys remember that year and model, but it just always sticks out to me. You get some of you are laughing. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But it, I remember that car pulling up, smoke coming out of the tailpipe. I'm like, what are these guys doing? They must have stolen this car. So they pull up and they knock on the door and they say, hey, Jed, we know you're short on money. You And I always carried a 380 automatic pistol on me everywhere I went because I typically had a lot of cash on me. And they said, and before I go further, I want to you know, also state this, that there's a lot of crazy things that I'm talking about today that are very, you know, traumatizing. They're very, um, uh, obviously criminal, you know. Uh, I don't want to glorify these things. I want you to know that I know they're very wrong. They, they've, I've hurt people. I'm not trying to idolize that or glamorize this, but I do want to share them because the darkness they represent only illuminates the goodness and the brightness and the light of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so that's the only reason why I'm sharing them. So just to, just to make sure and be clear, I don't want to glorify these things, but I do want to illuminate who Christ is and what he's done in my life through them. So they pull up and they say, Hey, Jed, you want to, we got a plan. You want to kick in some doors to some people's homes. Our plan is to take everything they got. We have some rope. If they're home, we're going to tie them up and take everything they've got. Are you down? And I'm like, just go. I'm down for whatever, you know? And so that's what we did from 10 a.m. that morning till three o'clock that afternoon. We go from house to house, kicking indoors, taking people's things. Thank, thank God there was never anyone home. We never harmed anyone physically. Now, I'm not going to minimize that either because we did harm people emotionally, spiritually. It's, it's traumatizing to come home and your house has been broken into and your things have been rummaged through and things are missing you know, family heirlooms are gone, you know, things like that. Um, you know, it's it's very terrorizing for something like that to happen. But um, thankfully, we didn't hurt, hurt anyone physically. So we did this from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. And then at the end of the day, around 3 p.m., we said we're going to hit one more house and then we're going to cash everything else that we have in, the, the things that we have left in. After, go, you know, we went to the pawn shop throughout the day and sold a lot of things. <clears throat> and then we're going to call it a day. But something deep inside me said something was about to go wrong. As if I shouldn't have had that feeling at 10 a.m., right? Like, you know, you know, hey, it's 3 p.m., Jed. It's not Taco Bell from the night before. Like, something will probably go wrong, you know? And so, but I didn't want to look weak in front of my friends. You know, I want to move forward. You know, I'm this, I'm this wannabe tough guy that um, I'm going to go forward with this. So we go to the front door, we kick in the door, we're inside, we're rummaging through everything, we're pulling things together, we're amped with adrenaline, even more so because I do, I really feel like something's about to go bad, I'm trying to get through this as quick as possible, I look out the window in the front, 
in the driveway where the girl driving the getaway car is parked. There's a police officer that pulls in front of her, jams her up as they're pulling her out of the car into the back of the police car that was the, of the cruiser. So we're like, man, we got to get out of here. My friend that I had handed my gun to gives the gun back to me. He's like, hot potato. I don't want this gun. So I take the gun back. We break out the window, dive out of the window, and we take off running with me in front with the gun in my hand through this neighborhood, the front yards in this community, this little neighborhood. As I'm running through the front yards, I look to the right of me, and a police car comes to an abrupt stop. The officer jumps out of the vehicle, draws his weapon over the vehicle, yells at me about 20 feet from me, says, drop your weapon or I'm going to shoot. And my first wired reaction is to raise my weapon on him and say, no, you drop your weapon or I'm going to shoot. Just a little side note, bad idea. Don't do that. I don't think any of you will be in that situation anytime soon, but it's a bad idea. So before I, I can squeeze a, a shot off, thank, thank the Lord. He shoots five times, hitting me four times in my chest, arm, and twice in my hand. And I don't know if many of you can see, but my, that's when my finger is bent when he, where he shot me in my hand. The good news is I have a skill to where I can point around corners now, like that. So I know you guys are envious, but it's whatever. So um, when the bullet hit me in the chest, it was as if someone hit me in the chest with a sledgehammer. And I hit the ground, and all I can remember is things just slowing down and me getting colder and colder. Well, in, in the book you said, uh, you said that it, you thought you felt rain on yeah. your face. Yeah. W what was that? If, yeah, so it felt like there was, it was raining on my face. But every time my heart beat, blood was spewing out of my chest because he hit a main artery in my chest. And so blood was spewing out of my chest and it was coming down. And I, before I knew it, I was covered in my own blood. And I had eventually I'd lost 65% of my blood supply. Wow. The ambulance comes, puts me in the ambulance. On my way to Baptist Medical Center in Oklahoma City, I had lost 60 or I'm sorry, 20%. I'm sorry. I'd flatlined for 20 seconds after losing 65% of my blood supply. Uh, they revived me with defibrillators, and I woke up handcuffed to a bed in ICU thinking, you know, what just happened? Yeah. You know, and it was a really sobering moment when that when, when I woke up in that hospital bed. So <clears throat> you wake up, 18-year-old, 19, 18? 18-year-old, 18, uh, you're handcuffed to the bed, um, and they've got to nurse you back to health before they can process you. Um, so after a couple of weeks in the hospital, they send you to County, right? And what, 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 what happens then? What does that look like? Well, County is a delightful place. They, um, <laughs> treat you really well. No, just kidding. Uh, they take you to County, take me to County jail. And at that time it's the old County jail in Oklahoma yeah. city. And the old County jail is horrible. You know, I was in a four man felony side tank and I was the sixth man in a four-man tank. So I, they literally put me under a toilet stool. I'm in a, um, like a hospital gown, paper gown, uh, delirious from pain medication. And I mean, it was so bad. Like literally the cockroaches do drive-bys in the cells there. <laughs> so I know, bad joke. Anyway, so about three days later, two, three days later, my brother bonds me out of county jail and I get to his house. And um, honestly, I wish I could say you know, that was the moment when I got shot, when yeah. I got out of jail, all these things. That's when I got my, my life together and I really started seeking the Lord and moving forward in a plan of recovery and, you know, just really 
you know, trying to just seek some type of um, pathway to uh, uh, salvation. But, man, I was so depressed. I was so lost. I was so unsure of my future. Um, my girlfriend got pregnant about a week after I'd gotten out of the hospital, which is, hey, this is a great idea. I'm about to go to prison potentially for the rest of my life. Let's get pregnant and have a baby. You know, it's, I just, my mind was not in a place to where I had any bearing. I had no guidance in life, no mentorship, nothing. And actually, I started using drugs. I mean, anything you can think of, cocaine, meth, pills, everything. And I started spiraling into this deep, dark depression. And, uh, I mean, I was just lost. And yeah. so I was out of, out of, uh, I was out on bond for about seven and a half months. And in that seven and a half month stretch, um, I'd given a blind plea of guilty. So after seven and a half months, explain what a blind, blind plea of guilty is. So when you plea, give a blind plea of guilty, that means you're placing yourself at the mercy of the court, which in my situation, I was, that was a paid lawyer that gave me that advice, which is a really a bad idea because I had everything stacked against me. I, I had a gun, there was a gun involved. I tried to shoot a police officer. The judge I had was a former police officer. So when you place yourself at the mercy of a judge like that, you're not going to get a good favorable sentence. So I, had, I didn't know all these things. And so when you go back into county for a month, they do a pre-sentence investigation. So for some reason, they didn't find anything good about me. I'm not sure why that was, but um, I just wasn't living the, my best life, you know. So uh, <clears throat> I thought I was, but I wasn't. And so in that eight-and-a-half-month mark, after being in for a month, I go back into the courtroom to be sentenced. So they pull me from county jail to the courtroom. Um, I'm shackled and chained, orange jumpsuit, and um, I shuffle into the courtroom. And I look to my right. My whole family's there. And my girlfriend, who's pregnant now at this point, eight and a half months pregnant, mm -hmm. she points at her stomach and says, I'm in labor. She mouths to me, I'm in labor, like active labor. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, like this is crazy. And I'm like looking around for cameras. This is like a reality show at this point. And, and so I, I walk up to the judge and I have a few words that I can say before he sentences me because this, this is sentencing day. The, and, you know, the, the, uh, Pre-sense investigator gives his report, and that was just awful to hear. You know, it was not good. Um, and so I give my best speech I could muster up to try to see if I could plead to at least get some kind of, uh, you know, tempered sentence or something like that. Um, didn't work. He said, and these were his words, he said, Mr. Chapel, I'm tired of little punks like you running around my city, taking people's stuff. Um, he said, my home was broken into, or my family's home was broken into, and they stole my grandmother's family heirloom pearl necklaces, and we never recovered them. So I'm going to make sure you get the maximum amount of time possible, and uh, and I hope you don't get out anytime soon. And he sentences me to 47 years in prison, now at, eight, at 19 years old, wraps the gavel, and it was like my ears were ringing from that gavel wrap. My family loses it, I lose it. And it was like, again, that whole thought of, you know, what just happened, yeah. you know. And uh, in that moment, that's where it was like the snap happened. Wow, things are definitely different. Things have changed. The game has changed. And something has to change in my life. And um, it was then that I went back to my county jail cell. I fell flat on my face. I began to cry out to God. I repented of everything I had done. 
and I knew what to do because I'd been in church. I knew that I knew the I knew what to do, you know. But mm-hmm. it was like a a Holy Spirit prompting that came over me, and I repented, and I felt I felt I felt the Spirit of God in my my cell in a way that I had never experienced Him before in my life. Yeah, and I knew that he was there and I knew Jesus was real and I knew that he was engaging in an active relationship with me in that moment. And I knew that my heart had broken and there was a shift inside me. And I knew that I would be different from that point on. And I knew that I had a long way to go. And I knew that there was a process and I didn't have these words at that time, but now I can say these words that there is a process of a sanctification, like the, there's some stuff that had to be cleaned out of me, mm-hmm. and there's still stuff that has to be cleaned out of me today, you know, yeah. like all of us, you know, but, but it was like this refreshing moment, even though there was a broken moment. And, um, so yeah. Well, in the book, you, in the book, you say, at that moment, I realized I had believed a lie. Yeah. And what was, what was the lie that you believed? Yeah, you know, there is an ultimate lie, but there is so many lies, I believe, but the ultimate lie was that God didn't love me. And that he had abandoned me. And, you know, it's fun. You know, it's really powerful. There was a, a gentleman that came up to me after the last service, and he tears in his eyes, and he's like, he said, man, do you think God can save anybody? Mm. I'm going to probably get emotional again. Yeah. And, uh, and I said, yeah, man. I said, absolutely. Um, I'm sorry, guys. This is awkward for you guys, too, probably. No, it's Um, good. It's good. You know, um, I said, absolutely, he can save anybody. And I said, you know what? I remember what that felt like, what you're feeling right now. But now I know what it feels like to to know without a doubt that it, what it feels like to know that absolutely you can, and he can save anybody. But I felt like he had abandoned me. I believed a lie that he had abandoned me. And I believe the lie that he loved me, he didn't love me, and that he couldn't save me. And in that moment, I was like, wow, I know he loves me. You know what? And I told this, this gentleman this earlier, and I told him, I, I tapped his shoulder, and I said, he's been right here this whole, this whole time with you. Yeah. You may not have realized that. Yeah. I said, you know what? There's, there was times where I didn't feel it. I didn't believe it. Um, I couldn't sense it. But the truth is, he'd been right on my shoulder the whole time. Yeah. Even whispering in my ear, putting people in front of me, putting people behind I mean, God's all around me, even in the darkest places of my life, you know? And so I had believed that lie for so long. And then when, when he re- broke those scales off my eyes, so to speak, it helped me. Um, and when he broke that lie in my life, you know, when you, when you, when that lie is broken, and you know the truth, you have that truth to go back to every day. Yeah. When that shame comes back, you have that truth to go back to. Yeah. When that untruth rears its head, you have the truth to go back to. And also that truth is in the Word of God. That truth is in prayer. That truth is in community, in yeah. relationship with other believers. And so that's why, you know, in, in uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you call them small groups or life groups here at Summit, but whenever you have community like that, that or serve groups that you can go to, and have community with people that you can have that truth to go back to together, that's powerful. Yeah. And come here on a Sunday and hear the truth preached. Wherever you can go back to that truth, to break that lie again when it tries to rear its head, it's just powerful. So yeah. anyway, I haven't said that yet in a service, but that's that's how I combat that that lie. Yeah. So, um, so at this point, 
you're a young man. You just gotten sentenced. You, basically, if you full, if you serve the full sentence, you're going to be almost 70 when you get out of jail. Yeah. Um, you've got a, a baby who's literally being born right then. Um, and you've had this epiphany, this moment with God. Um, and, and it's interesting. You just said that, um, you know, that God was, you recognize now that God was with you the whole time, but even in this next season you go into, I think there's a lot of evidence that God was with you even as you begin your prison sentence. So tell us a little bit about that. And I know that, I mean, you and I have talked about this before. I think a lot of people are, you know, ask the question like, Oh, what's prison like? Cause they want all the weird stories or whatever it is. But, uh, but tell us what was your experience like? What, what was God doing? How was God working? Yeah, you know, there is, I mean, if you watch some movies, and I think Shawshank Redemption always comes to people's minds <laughs> a lot of times, but there is, there's some truth to that. You know, yeah. I, I can say that one thing I can say up front is, you know, God's sovereign hand was on me the whole time. He, he, he protected me. You know, honestly, I didn't have to get into one fight and I was at some violent prisons. And so he, that's miraculous in and yeah. of itself. Cause typically you have to fight. You have to join a clique. You have to do something. And I didn't have to do that. He protected me. What, you know, what's crazy, you know, the, you know, God works all things together for good. Um, and, uh, God used the fact that I tried to shoot a police officer. <laughs> I'll take anything at this point. Mm-hmm. But when I was in there, uh, I knew a lot of, um, people from different gangs and things like that from the streets from selling drugs. So people, and I, people reminded me like, Oh, you're that kid that got shot on the streets. Oh, you knew so and so from this set you used to sell that. And so they would, I knew a lot of people from those gangs. So that protected me too. I had street cred yeah. immediately. Yeah. So I'm like, I'll take it. You know, I'll take whatever I can, you know, I can to keep from having to get into a lot of trouble. So anyway, God used that. He used all kinds of stuff to protect me, but I saw a lot of pain in prison. I saw yeah. a lot of people severely beaten in prison. I saw a lot of, uh, I've saw people, I've seen people get stabbed. I've seen people get hurt severely and it was hard to, um, there's some things I've had to deal with in counseling, um, as it relates to that, even after writing my book, because my publisher, when we came to the part about talking about prison, he said, so tell me about prison. And I was like, oh yeah, I did eight years in prison. Next chapter. And he's like, no, let's talk about prison. And I kind of wanted to breeze past that. And, but he made me talk about it more. And I was like, whoa, there's a lot of stuff that I just didn't want to talk about because, you know, in there, you're, you're kind of forced to look the other way when things happen or else, you know, you kind of get caught up in the, in that stuff. You know, you you can get in, in trouble with the, your, you know, your peers. But so anyway, but there's also so many hopeful things that happened in there. I've met some of my best friends in prison that who are on, are out of prison now too are great. Fathers, husbands, citizens, businessmen, you name it, men of God, just great, great, great people. And so we had some incredible times in church in prison. Um, I became an excellent sand volleyball player in prison. <laughs> that's one of my, it's one of my highlights, guys. <laughs> I'm really good at sitting. No, I'm just kidding. I'm actually not too bad. <laughs> um, I played good soccer in prison. Actually, me and Pastor Mel were on an indoor soccer team. We played when we were at church, worked at a church together. So yeah. I got good at soccer there too. Yeah. But so yeah, prison offered me a lot of great things. You know, honestly, I say this, I would never go back to prison as a prisoner. <laughs> I would go willingly to speak, but I would never go back as a prisoner, but I don't regret my time in prison yeah. because it really made me 
the man I am today and just all the diversity, the, the, the diverse types of people that are in prison um, help me find common ground with different types of people that I get to leverage today as a pastor, yeah. um, which is really cool. So, um, so through just kind of the move of God, um, you stay out of trouble, you're progressing, you're growing in your faith, you're making good choices, all these things are happening. And just through a series of events, um, you are, you're actually paroled at uh, about the eight-year mark, roughly. Um, so instead of serving 47 years, you, you serve eight, which again, we, we don't have time to get into all that today, but you talk about it more in your book, but, um, you get out and you're faced with life outside the fence. And so what does that look like for you as you acclimate and readjust? Sure. Well, I always laugh because I tell people when I, I, I get out of prison and, um, the first place my mom thought was, it was a good idea to take me was Walmart. And, um, at this peak busyness of the day. And, you know, in, in prison, there's this rule. You, like, have a three-foot rule. Like, don't get it in my three feet of space. Like, it's really a serious rule. And at Walmart, that is not the case, you know. <laughs> so people are bumping into me with their carts, and I'm like, where's my shank, you know? Like, you know, no, I'm just, I didn't say that. But, you know, it's just like, get out of my space. This is uncomfortable. What's going on here? And um, so I had to get used to some of the societal norms. Obviously, I acclimated pretty quickly. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of joking, but but it was a little some. You know, I had to get used to certain things. You know, like there's a high, extreme level of respect in prison, mm-hmm. and so whenever people wouldn't show you that respect, yeah, same respect, it was uncomfortable at first. And so there were some adjustments there, but you know, I adjusted quickly and started attending church, the church that you and I worked at in Oklahoma City. And it was really cool. It was a church that uh, welcomed me in very, very quickly. And uh, I would attend on weekends and Wednesdays with my son, who I had relationship the whole time um, while I was in prison. And then I would attend on weekends and Wednesdays. And this, the youth pastor there at Victory Church yeah. would, um, you know, hang out in the lobby with me and talk. And one day he said, he said, hey, you know what? Just in talking with you, he said, I feel like you'd be a really good youth volunteer here at the church. And I was like, you, you know, you know what? Um, you should probably run a really good background check before you even consider me mopping the floors here. You know, I'm not sure about a youth, a youth leader. Uh-huh. And so we started talking some more and I actually told him my whole story just be, to be clear, you know, and he said, man, honestly, you know, his eyes got real big at first, but he said, you know, honestly, some of the kids in this neighborhood could really benefit from a guy like you with your experiences. And here's what's cool about how cool of a God we, we serve is, you know, he, he is such a full circle God that the building that I served as a youth volunteer in was across the street from the actual church that we, we had main services at, at that time. It was the youth building across the street. And that building now, that church sold to us at City Center. Now we own it, and we serve thousands of children in that same building every single week at City Center. Yeah. Yeah. So just another, just another way he brings things full circle. So. Yeah. So um, you, you start attending. You're, you're serving pretty soon. Uh, you get an opportunity to come on staff. You start leading outreach in small groups. And, uh, I've told a little bit of the story of my transition out of victory in the past, but, um, but 
there was, uh, it was a tumultuous time for leadership there. I transitioned out, we left. And not too long after that, you guys felt like God was moving you on as well. So tell us, pick up the story from there. Yeah. So we, um, yeah, shortly after that, you know, again, you're right. It was tumultuous and we just felt like my wife and I, our time was, was up there at victory as well. And, uh, we felt our, our hearts being called to Minnesota, um, and with some friends up there that were planning a church. So we went up there for about a year and a half, and it was in a suburb that was kind of isolated from the type of ministry that I was used to doing, which was with marginalized folks that were, you know, homeless ministry, at-risk youth, um, just those on the margins. And so my heart's always really been there. And um, it was, it was, I was missing that type of ministry so much that I actually started driving for Uber in the Twin Cities, and I would just love it because, you know, I'm picking up all kinds of crazy people and in, in the specific areas that I would definitely try to drive in. And so I'd get some of the craziest stories, you know. And they always say, like, the Uber drivers are the, the, the modern-day bartender. You know, mm-hmm. you hear all the crazy stories. Um, not that you're serving alcohol in the Uber car, just to clarify. <laughs> you, you might get in trouble for that. I think so, yeah. So anyway, it, so with that said, I was just longing to go back to that type of ministry. And so as we began to look at our news feed on Facebook and, you know, Instagram and things like that back home, we noticed that, you know, education levels were dipping and scores were dipping. Uh, food insecurity, insecurities were increasing. Homelessness was increasing. All these things were increasing in Oklahoma City. And we were kind of saying something in our hearts were just, were just emerging. We were saying, we miss Oklahoma City and we miss being a part of the solution yeah. to the problem. You know, even though we're not the answer overall to the problem, we can be a part of the answer. And so a mutual friend of ours, Pastor John Chastine, uh, both started talking and he said, man, I got a building that's available we want to help you out with some seed money. Would you be interested in starting a, a resource center or a ministry right across the street from the church to get to, to fulfill your heart, your your passion? I was like, absolutely. So two weeks later, we're in a car moving everything back to Oklahoma City. We launched City Center, and you know it's been widely successful for the past four and a half, almost five years. So tell us a little about the ministry of City Center, some of the things you do, and uh, and people you're helping. What does that look like? Yeah, so we serve under-resourced families and at-risk youth. And so we are a one-stop shop hub for a neighborhood that can give access to resources that they would otherwise not have access to. Uh, in Oklahoma City, the transit system is very poor, and a lot of people don't have um, transportation to all the resources that are really widely spread out all over Oklahoma City. So we believe that young people and families should have access to these types of resources. So what we do is we offer a, a food pantry, a clothing closet, a nutrition program, uh, athletic and educational mentorship programs for young people in the after school hours. During COVID, we pivoted and became a distance learning center for kids and families that didn't have Wi-Fi access and things like that. Um, we became a major food resource for that whole, whole entire community. I think since COVID, we had offered over 140,000 meals to families in need. Wow. Yeah, it was unbelievable what we were uh, able to do by the grace of God and by tons of in-kind gifts. And you guys threw a garage sale for us and raised over $10,000 or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Unbelievable. Give it up for yourselves for that, by the way. That's like, that's got to be a Guinness... 
Book of World Record garage sale, like $10,000 garage sale. It was a very fancy garage sale. It was very fancy. Thank you. I say it's fancy. <laughs> um, and so we serve families in that, in that way. Yeah. And so we just, we love meeting people right with where they're at, uh, with dignity though. Yeah. You know, when people are under resourced, uh, one, one thing that we think is most important is just because they're under resourced doesn't mean that we need to serve them with a lack of dignity. Right. You know? Right. Um, we're all human. We're all in, in this together. You know, everybody deserves dignity. Everybody, you know, we're all just, um, in this, in this thing together. And so it, it's a lot of fun to be able to serve our community the way we do. Um, I would strongly encourage you, um, stop by the table, visit with Jed following the worship experience today. Uh, Julie, his wife, is actually in Blairsville today. Um, she's at the table down there visiting with them. We're glad to have these guys with us. If you would like to visit with Jed, find out more about his story, you know, let him know if your, his story has impacted you, stop by and visit with him. If you'd like to pick up a copy of his book, like I said, we don't have a ton of these left, um, but you can pick up a copy of his book at the uh, table as well. And I would strongly encourage you, if God's laid it on your heart to give them a, a financial gift, a one-time gift, a, make a monthly commitment to support their ministry, I would, I would really encourage you to do that. So this is the point where most of you are going, okay, we're done. And I've got bad news for you. We're not. This is like a movie where like the credits start to roll and then there's an end credit scene. And sometimes they're really good and sometimes they're not. But I'm telling you, the end credit scenes are pretty good on this one. So let me back up in your story, Jed, because um, you're on staff at Victory before you moved to Minnesota in 2011. Um, and you feel like the Holy Spirit kind of dropped something in your heart. So tell me about that. Yeah. So I'm sit- sitting at my desk and... Um, you know, the Lord really speaks to me in ways where it's more of an impression. Um, and I'm sitting there and he says, Jed, you really need to reach out to the officer that shot you and ask him for forgiveness. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, God, you're going to help have to help me with this conversation. What does that look like? You know, I've kind of shrunk back inside myself and I'm thinking, okay, I'm running through the phone call in my head like, hi, um, this is Jed. Yeah. I'm the guy that tried to shoot you. I promise I'm all better now. Um, you want to go have coffee? You know, like, let's talk about it. You know, what does that look like? You know? Um, and so I, I consulted with some friends, police officers, things like that. And everyone said it was a really good idea. So I, f- I found out where he worked. He was no longer a police officer. Um, he was working for a different company. So I mustered up the courage one day. No plan. Just me and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to call this guy. So I called the number. They t- he wasn't there, and they took my number, not my name, which I thought was interesting. Um, five minutes later, I get a phone call back, and my heart is pounding out of my chest. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, it's about to happen. And so I answer the phone, and um, he says, this is Jerry. Did I receive a phone call from this number? I, and I said, yes, sir. I, I had a couple questions for you. I'll be really quick. I just don't want to take too much of your time. I said, first of all, are you a retired police officer with the Oklahoma City Police Department? He said, uh, yes, I am. I was like, okay, okay. And with this next question, we were either going to be best friends or I'm going straight back to prison. You know, I was like, he's gonna, it's going to be a dead giveaway. I said, were you um, involved in a shooting that involved a youth in 1995? And it got real quiet, and he said, yes, I was involved in a shooting like that. And I said, well, sir, my name is Jed Chapel." boy then, man now, that you shot. And I said, I wanted to ask you for forgiveness for putting you in that situation. He said, it has to be hard enough 
I said, it has to be hard enough to shoot anyone, let alone. And before I could get the words out, he said, a kid? I said, yeah, a kid. And a police vet, grown man, starts weeping audibly on the other side of the phone. And I said, sir, I just want you to know I'm a different man today. Um, I'm, I'm sorry for what I did. I'm sorry for the position I put you in. And he said, Jed, I felt like I was at fault for this. He said, I felt like I've needed your forgiveness for this whole, for the situation this whole time. He said, I felt like I had X, Y, and Z wrong. He started going down the list of things that he had done wrong. I was too excessive. I was this. And I respectfully stopped him and said, sir, you did exactly what you were trained to do. If any other police officer would have done the exact same thing, um, I, I would have killed someone or harmed someone in their home because I'm not a trained weapons expert. I could have shot into a home and killed some little old lady crocheting on her couch. There's no telling what I could have done that day if you wouldn't have stopped me. I said, I just want you to know that if you need my forgiveness, you got it. I just needed your forgiveness because I want to make amends with all those I could have harmed that day. And I said, I said, matter of fact, I'm a, I'm a different person. And I just want to know, have you ever heard of Victory Church? He said, yeah, I've actually been to that church before. I said, you know, I'm actually a pastor there now. He said, my goodness, God does work miracles, doesn't he? <laughs> I was like, yes, he does. This is what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> and um, he said, I said, you know, I would love to take you to coffee someday and just talk about what that fork in the road looked like for us. And, uh, you know, he was hesitant. He's like, you know, that sounds good. We'll get to that. You know, we'll work up to that. But the story gets better. Um, about six months later, uh, I get a phone call from Jerry again. And he said, um, he's, he's, he's a little emotional. And he said, he said, Jed, uh, my son is 17 years old. And we've been struggling with him for about a year now. He's been struggling with a heroin addiction. And we don't know what to do with him. He said, my wife and I have been praying we feel like you're the person that can help him. Would you be willing to sit with him and talk with him on a weekly basis and potentially get him into a rehab facility? And I'm thinking, you know, Jerry, if you would have asked me to mop your floors with my face for a year, I would have said yes. You know, that's a really weird request that I just made up in my head. But I would have definitely said yes to that. But to do this, you know, this would be an honor, Jerry. Absolutely. I would, I would be honored to. So I did just that for eight months. And then me, him and his mom took him to a rehab and he got into rehab. And, um, he's been clean now for almost seven years. He graduated with a degree in cybersecurity. And you know, there, obviously there's nothing I, I can attribute that to other than God and his grace, the power of forgiveness. The full circle nature of forgiveness, when you offer forgiveness, you receive forgiveness, and it just comes around full circle and brings healing to others. That's that's just God at work. You know what I mean? There's nothing. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of forgiveness. That's the, it's just, it's, it's a beautiful thing. You know, it's really cool. There's a conversation that Jerry's wife and I, you know, Jerry's wife and I had before we were driving Brian, their son, to that rehab facility. And so bear with me, I could get emotional when I say this, tell this story, but we're sitting at this table at lunch, I'll never forget, it's at TGI Fridays, and um, we were talking, and she said, you know, Jed, Jerry probably wouldn't tell you, because Jerry's a really kind of one of those strong, silent, you know, cop-type guys, and um, she said, Jerry probably wouldn't tell you this, she said, but we prayed for you all night till about one in the morning, that day that he shot you, 
he said, she said that was the hardest. That was his, his first near fatal shooting. He said she, he had shot people before, but first near fatal shooting he had ever had. And he, he said, we prayed till one in the morning that you would live. And she said, we had no idea that we were praying that you would live and that you would live and that you would be the person that would then survive and help bring healing to our son to see him live and survive addiction um, and bring things full circle yeah. in his life. And I'm just like, Bleh! you know, I lose it. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. But to see, again, God's full circle nature, nature at play um, in that situation, in that scenario, scenario was so powerful to see that redemptive story. And to this day, you know, probably once a year, Jerry and I talk and text and he tells me he loves me, calls me son. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how does that happen other than the redemptive nature and love of God? Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, last story I want to ask you about. <clears throat> um, you had made an application to, uh, to receive a pardon and, um, you, you, it looked like that, you know, there was never going to materialize or come to anything. And then right as you guys were transitioning from Oklahoma City to Minnesota, you, you got a, a, a message out of nowhere. So also tell us what happened. Yeah. So, oh, long time ago, I had applied for a pardon and I wasn't sure that I even really needed one. You know, I was living a great life as a pastor. I loved what I was doing. It wasn't necessary. Mm -hmm. Everybody knew my story, my past, you know, I wasn't really worried about that, but I thought, you know, it might be cool for another you know, part of the testimony. I, you know, but whatever happened with my paralegal that filed it, that person didn't complete the paperwork properly back then. So I got a letter back saying it wasn't adequate. Well, we made the, the decision to be obedient to move to Minnesota. A lot of people didn't understand why we were moving from Oklahoma City, you know, for lots of reasons. Anyway, when we made that decision to be obedient, the next day I get another letter in the mail that said, you have a, a, a hearing with the pardon and parole board. So I thought, this is odd. My paperwork was messed up years ago. So I said, okay, so my hearing time was from 3 to 5 that next week. And so some statistics for you. Uh, when people go up before the board after 11, it's an all-day event, after 11 a.m., the percentage of people getting a yes vote decreases by 70% after 11 a.m. The percentage for people that have violent crimes decreases by 90%. So I had a violent crime, obviously. I had a gun, tried to shoot a police officer. So I'm thinking, this is comical. What am I doing here? My time was between 3 and 5. So I go anyway, and I end up going dead last at 5 o'clock. So I'm sitting there from 3 to 5, listening to people um, go up for their pardon. And literally, I this is one situation. I heard somebody that went up for to receive a hearing for a pardon for writing hot checks, and he was denied. I was like, you got to be kidding me. This was 10 years ago, his case was. So I'm thinking, why am I even here? You know, this is ridiculous. And, and so I, and I end up going dead last. So I'm in that 90, probably 99 percentile of people that I'm probably a hundred percent chance of getting denied right now, but I'm still here. I'm like, what are you teaching me, Lord? So I go up and I, and they give you two minutes to speak. So you guys have seen how long it's taken me to get my whole story out. But I thought the Lord was telling me in that moment, I'm just going to tell him my whole story. So I'm sitting there. And I'm just like, okay, Holy Spirit, me and you, I'm just going to let it rip. I'm going to tell him my whole story and, until they stop me. And the woman that was 
leading the, the whole discussion amongst the five board members was very like harsh, direct, no mercy. Um, so I was intimidated too. I was like, man, this is not going to go well. So I get up there. I take a deep breath. They all take a deep breath, lean back and cross their arms. We're like, okay, we've been waiting for this guy. We're ready for the day to be over. So I get up, I start talking and I just tell my whole story. They let me speak for 20 minutes and halfway through it, half of the board starts crying and they start leaning forward and listening to me more and more intently. I get finished speaking and the lady leading the discussion leans forward, who didn't say a word the whole time, by the way, leans forward and said, Mr. Chapel, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, this case was so significant because of its you know, circumstances. There was a officer involved. There was a gun involved. It was violent. Um, we, we see all the things that you've done in the community. We, all, we see all these great letters that were written on your behalf. But we reviewed your case specifically first thing this morning because of its significance. And we all agreed this was going to be a unanimous no vote. But after, after hearing you face to face and hearing your story, my vote is a yes. What do, what do you guys think? And they all unanimously voted yes to pardon me right there in that moment. But that's not, that's not the end of it though. The governor still has to vote, you know, sign off as yes too. So I was thinking, okay, that's awesome. It was this awesome moment. And I'll be honest with you, I had goosebumps all over me. It was like, and honestly, the Holy Spirit was so strong in the room. You know, it was like this moment where the Holy Spirit was like working on, I'm not sure if they were all believers or not, but the Holy Spirit definitely was moving in their hearts. And so, um, so anyway, we moved to Minnesota and the governor always takes 90 days to sign off yes or no. And at that time, it was a governor that did not give any violent offenders uh, a, a signature of yes for pardons or parole. Um, so anyway, I'm in, in Minnesota, 26 days later, driving down the highway, I get a phone call. It's the governor's personal assistant. And she said, the governor wanted me to call you directly and tell you that as I speak, I'm entering in her yes vote and signature on your full pardon from all your crimes and your felonies in Oklahoma as we speak. She wanted to say congratulations, and, and she wanted you to hear it from us first before you got a letter. So I'm fully pardoned from all those crimes in Oklahoma. And I just realized, man, that was a physical representation of the spiritual pardon and the spiritual work that Christ has done yeah. in our hearts and our lives. And I just feel like I have to tell you guys that, you know, no one, none of us, we're, we're never too far gone. You know, the work that he did on the cross is for us. You know, he has pardoned us. When we accept that work that he's done in our hearts, we are pardoned. We are forgiven. We are redeemed. We are set free. We don't have to, we don't have to take on that shame from our past. We don't have to, let it control our hearts and our minds and our lives. We don't, we don't have to, like the gentleman that I talked to in the, in the, in the lobby earlier. Yes, he can save anyone. You know, if, if he can save and redeem me, if he can, if he can break that lie that I believed in that inner vow that I held with myself, man, he can break that lie and that inner vow with anyone. So I don't know who that's for. And that's something that a lot of people say in church services, I think. Um, but I know that for Pastor Mel and for me, when we say that kind of stuff, we really mean that and believe that, you know, 
That's for anybody. You know, anyone's life can be made new and it can happen today for you. And I know Pastor Mel will walk you through some of that stuff today and, and he, as he does every Sunday. But I just want you to know from my heart to yours, man, if if you're not dead, God's not done. You know, he has a plan for your life. He has a purpose for your life. And he wants the stuff in your hands, maybe that he's just saying, like, just open it up a little bit. And let me have it. And once you let him have it, man, there's a whole new world out there for you that he he wants to walk walk with you in. So love you guys. And Pastor, I love you so much. You and Kim have been like incredible to us. And I hope you guys know that you have the most incredible pastors on the face of the planet. And I'm not just saying that. I don't say that at every church I go to. I really mean that. You have the most incredible pastors on the planet. And we love these guys. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you, Jed. I do want to encourage you. Uh, Jed's book is available. Uh, he's going to be in the lobby answering questions, connecting with you. Uh, he'd love to say hi to you. And I want to encourage you to, to support their ministry somehow, whether it's prayerfully or through your financial support, whatever it might be. But I'm going to go ahead and dismiss Jed and let him go ahead and get out to the lobby. So can we give him another round of applause? <laughs> And right now, I want to turn it over to our Blairsville campus. Uh, your host is going to close out the rest of this service, and we're so grateful that uh, you've worshiped with us today, guys. I love you more than you know. I'm so glad I get to be your pastor. God bless you. Today, uh, you know, one of the things I love is when Jed was talking about his pardon. And he talks about it a little bit in the book as well, and it, it made me think of this verse in Isaiah 55, 7. It says, Let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God, for he will forgive generously. And the word for forgive here is the word that's also translated as pardon. He will pardon generously. That's who our God is. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me about this idea of a pardon is in some countries, people are granted a pardon, but they don't receive it because if they receive a pardon, they have to admit guilt and they want to maintain their innocence. So they don't want to receive a pardon. So they stay locked up. Uh, they, they have all the ramifications of the legal system, even though they've got a pardon available to them. And I, I thought that is so much like our world spiritually. There's a pardon available for you through Christ Jesus. God has pardoned your sin through the atoning work of Christ on the cross. He paid the price. He, he paid our debt. But yet so many people, we go, no, 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 I, I don't, I'm not guilty. I haven't done anything. I'm good. I'm moral. I've, I haven't done anything like Jed. Man, that guy's bad. I'm not bad. But the reality is scripture tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can save ourselves. None of us can be moral enough or good enough. And on the other hand, none of us can sin so much. We can't out sin the grace of God. God's grace is greater. As, as sin abounds, grace does much more abound. So I want you to know there's a pardon available for you today, but you have to receive it. You have to admit that you need it. 
And that's where God's grace will flood into the situation. So I want to give you that opportunity today. So if you would, bow your head and close your eyes all over this place. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak into us over these next few moments. I pray that you'd speak life and hope into us. Lord, for those that feel like they've run too far or done too much, that they've, they've, there's, there's too much of an imbalance in their sin, that, that their sin can never be forgiven. Open their eyes to your grace today. Help them see how much grace is available for them today. Lord, for those that, that maybe they don't even think they need a pardon, maybe they think they're good, they're moral, they're fine the way they are, God, I pray that you help them see that none of us can attain right standing with you. None of us can be justified by our own actions, but God, we need a pardon from you. And that pardon is in the form of Jesus Christ. So God, I pray right now the Holy Spirit would draw us to you. You would reveal to us what we need to see about you and about ourselves. And I pray that you do the work that we can't do in ourselves. So Lord, minister over these next few moments. Now with nobody looking around, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you'd say to me today, Mel, you know what? What you just described is me. I need a pardon. I know I need a pardon today. I'm not good enough to save myself. Or maybe you're here and you say, I, I felt like I was too bad, like I've gone too far, I've done too much but I recognize today that, that I'm not too far gone, that there's a pardon waiting for me. But if you acknowledge today, I need that pardon that you're talking about. I need to accept, to receive that. Would you be bold enough to slip your hand up real high where I can see it? And you can put it right back down. If you say, Mel, that, that's me. I need a pardon today. Yeah, I see you up there. Thanks. Praise God. Who else would say, no, I need a pardon today. I recognize I'm not good enough in myself. Yeah, thank you in the back. Praise the Lord. Just a few more seconds. Anyone else? All right. Thanks, buddy. I see you. Praise God. Praise God. The book of Romans tells if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So I want to say this prayer with you. And I don't want you to just to repeat it mindlessly. I want you to say this from the very core of your being. I want you to mean it as if you're praying it yourself right to the heart of God, because you are. So let's pray this prayer together. I want you to repeat this with me out loud. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me so much that you sent Jesus to pay the price and pardon me of my sin. From this day forward, my life is yours. Use it for your glory. I repent of my sin, and I'm asking you to be my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause. Listen, if you prayed that prayer with us today and you meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, there's one of two things that you can do. You can fill out the card that's in the seat back in front of you. Uh, fill it out. Let us know about your decision and take it to the info center. If you'd prefer, you can uh, you can take your mobile device and simply text the word Summit PA to the number 94000. When you do that, we're going to respond back to you and uh, you can select the prompt that says Salvation and we're going to get connected with you and help you take the next step in your faith journey. So let us know about your decision today. We want to help you grow in your faith. Here's what's going to happen right now. Uh, I'm going to say a final prayer over you, uh, just a prayer of blessing as we're dismissed. 
And while I'm praying, some of our prayer team and some of our pastors are going to join me here at the front of the room. And if you need prayer for any reason at all, no matter what it may be today, I would encourage you, as we are being dismissed, feel free to make your way forward. Find one of our team. Let them pray with you before you go. Uh, So let me pray over you while our team joins me here at the front of the room. Lord, thanks so much for what you've done in this place. Thank you for people who said yes to you today. I pray that each of us would walk out of this place understanding that we are vessels of your glory, that, God, we're going to carry your presence everywhere we go, and it's not going to be for us. It's going to be for you. People aren't going to see us. They're going to see Christ in us. So, God, I pray your blessing on us today, and I pray that your kingdom would expand because of what you're doing in and through us. Thank you for what you've done in this place today. Thank you for people who've said yes to you. We celebrate with heaven in that. So God, have your way with us this week. Be glorified through us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.